Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Geography and What Gets Researched, was written in collaboration with Carolyn Fry, Assistant Professor at the University of Hawaii at Manawa. How do academic researchers decide what to work on? Part of that comes down to what you judge to be important and valuable. And that can come from exposure to problems in your local community. For example, one of us, me in this case, Matt, did a PhD in Iowa and ended up writing a paper on the innovation impact of ethanol-style policies, because ethanol is a big business in Iowa. Uh, The other one of us, Carolyn, was leaving Sierra Leone after two years there, just as the Ebola epidemic was starting. And she became interested in understanding why science capacity is so low in some countries and not others, and what that means for the development of drugs and vaccines to combat local problems. And indeed, we're going to talk about two of the papers that emerged from that research program in just a minute. So both of us made research decisions that were in part influenced by exposure to local problems. So we can ask, are we atypical? Or is this path of exposure to research choice a common one? Now, the role of exposure to local problems in determining research choice is difficult to test, and that's because people might locate themselves in places precisely because they're interested in the problems of those places. And the ideal way, so the ideal way to test this would be if we could just randomly assign researchers to different locations and see if they work on local problems that they're exposed to. However, you know, randomly assigning researchers usually isn't particularly feasible. So alternatively, we could randomly assign problems to different locations and then see if local researchers begin working on those problems after exposure. Now, one candidate for a problem that all but randomly arises in some locations but not others is a novel disease outbreak. So one way to assess how strong is the local problems to local research link is to see how scientists respond to local disease outbreaks. Fry 2022 takes this strategy and evaluates the impact of the 2014 West African Ebola epidemic on the publication output of endemic country scientists. Did scientists working in areas hit harder by Ebola begin to disproportionately work on it? To see, Fry starts with a data set of 57 endemic country biomedical researchers, that is, people who are affiliated with institutions in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Liberia, the three hardest-hit countries at the time of the epidemic. She then matches those endemic country scientists to 532 control scientists who are from non-endemic countries in West or Central Africa, but who are at similar points in their career, work in similar areas, publish at similar rates, have similar rates of international collaborations, and reside in countries with similar GDP per capita. So then she pulls out the publication record for each sample scientist for the four years before and then the six years after the epidemic uh, using the Elsevier Scopus Publications database, and she creates counts of annual publications. Finally, she separates these counts into Ebola and non-Ebola publications through just a keyword search of the title, abstract, and keywords of the publication. Fry compares the changes in publication output of endemic country scientists to that of their control scientists, adjusting for sort of persistent differences between individual scientists, typical kind of career age trends, and variation in publication trends over time that sort of affect all scientists equally. And there's a figure that you can't see, which shows that prior to 2014, none of the scientists in her sample, the control or the ones residing in these countries that would go on to be hit hard by Ebola, before 2014, none of them are really publishing anything on Ebola. 
But beginning in 2014, the endemic country scientists experienced this large and fairly sustained increase in their publication output of Ebola-related publications as compared to non-endemic country scientists. And that, you know, that implies exposure to a new problem in a researcher's location can shift their attention towards that problem. Now, it could also be that something besides just exposure is going on, and we're going to talk about that, but let's stay with exposure for now. So we noted above that our ideal experiment might have been to randomly allocate scientists to different locations, and we can't maybe do that, but scientists do change locations of their own accord, and insofar as local problems drive research choice, well, then we might expect to see similar patterns when they do move. And Fry 2023 tests exactly this. This is a working paper that builds a data set of 32,113 biomedical scientists affiliated with an African institution between the years 2000 and 2020, uh, their publication output in different disease areas, again by extracting keywords from the title and abstract of the publication, and then it uses the affiliation listed in these publications to infer their country affiliation in each year. She then compares the research choices of these African scientists, proxied by the number of publications they publish on each disease, with the disease burden in their country of residence. And the idea is to compare the disease focus of these mobile researchers before and after they move to that of matched control researchers who don't migrate. And she finds indeed that researchers are more likely to publish papers on diseases that are more prevalent in their host country after they move there. And this trend is particularly salient for researchers moving into Africa from outside the continent. And note, this is relative to matched scientists who didn't move, but prior to the move were publishing at similar rates on the same diseases as the scientists who do move. Now, we can also see similar dynamics beyond the specific context of neglected tropical diseases. Moscona and Sastri 2022 provide some additional data from global agriculture, where there's substantial international variation in crop pests and pathogens. Moscona and Sastri search for the names of specific pests and pathogens in the titles, abstracts, and descriptions of agricultural patents across the world, using a data set on international crop pests and pathogens from the Center for Agriculture and Bioscience International. For example, there might be a patent for a pesticide to control a specific kind of pest, or maybe a patent for a gene that confers resistance to some kind of pathogen. Since investors list their country of residence on patents, Moscona and Sastri can see if inventors disproportionately invent technologies that mitigate pests and pathogens that are present in their country of residence. And that does seem to be the case. Uh, in a figure that you can't see, they show that for any given crop, pest, or pathogen, the number of patents by inventors in the same country where those pests and pathogens are found is much higher than the share of patents by inventors from other countries. Uh, basically, the number of patents by people who live in the same country as the pest or pathogen, it's like there's 1.7 patents per from local inventors per uh, pest or pathogen. The number from people who are not in a country where that pest or pathogen is present is just 0.1. Moscona and Sastry also statistically estimate the relationship between patents on a given pest or pathogen by country inventors and the presence of those pests and pathogens in that country, holding country and pest pathogen differences fixed. That analysis also finds local presence is a strong predictor of local patenting relative to a given pest or pathogen. 
So taking this cluster of papers as providing at least preliminary evidence that location influences research choice, the next question we might ask is, well, why? And we've suggested it could be due to researchers being exposed to local problems, and I think that's certainly one likely channel. It would be consistent, for example, with research that finds, for example, women scientists are more likely to work on issues that disproportionately affect women, which is sort of just, I think, all a piece of evidence that the problems you sort of encounter in your life experience are things that you're motivated to work on solutions to. But a researcher's location could influence their choice of topics in a number of other ways too. Researchers around the world might be, say, equally interested in a topic, but maybe just local researchers could have an advantage in studying a particular topic because of better access to local data. For example, samples of viruses, pests, pathogens, or infected people. It may also be that local funders of research, rather than researchers, are the ones who are more likely to know and care about local problems. You know, that said, at least in the case of the 2014 Ebola epidemic, Fry 2022, which we talked about at the outset, doesn't find any correlation between domestic funding for Ebola research and the shift towards it. But beyond these direct effects of location on research choice, one secondary effect could be social contagion from other researchers. Even if researchers are not initially motivated to study some local problem, they may want to locally collaborate. And if local collaborators are more likely working to be working on local problems, well, then they're more likely to begin working on that topic too. And we do have some evidence uh, in another post I've written about that researchers do more readily transfer ideas to each other when they're working locally together. And that could ultimately lead them to continue to focus on the topic even after they're no longer collaborating. And we can see some evidence for the importance of these geographically mediated social influences in Bell et al. 2017. In this case, for inve uh, inventions that go well beyond just sort of pests and pathogens uh, that affect humans and crops. Bell and co-authors link data on 1.2 million inventors born between 1980 and 1984 who patent before they are 28 to 32 years old. They link them to the tax records of these inventors and to the tax records of their parents. Bell and co-authors have tax data for the period 1996 to 2012. And since tax records show where the filer lives, this allows them to see where these young patentees lived between the ages of 12 and 16, uh, depending on the birth year and all the years after that. When we're broadening our scope to include all kinds of U.S. patents, there's no longer an obvious choice of like, what are we going to call a local problem, analogous to the regional pests and pathogens that we covered in the earlier papers. But there's still a lot of local variation in the kinds of things people invent locally, and Bell and co-authors do document this local social exposure to different kinds of inventive problems does matter a lot. For example, families that move to a high innovation area are not only likely to uh, more likely to become inventors, but on becoming an inventor, they also disproportionately patent in technologies that are strongly represented among the local community where they grew up, irrespective of current location. So whether by social exposure or maybe network formation, local transmission of research focus does seem to be persistent. If research is disproportionately likely to focus on local problems, at least kind of initially, well, then these kinds of dynamics could ensure ongoing regional specialization, even after the local problem has abated. Indeed, Fry 2022 finds that scientists in Ebola endemic countries in 2014 continue to publish disproportionately on neglected dis 
uh, tropical diseases, especially Ebola, for years after the epidemic ended in 2016. Now, another amplifier of this dynamic could be that expertise in a local problem can attract non-local people and resources that are interested in that problem. As we noted at the outset, rather than local problems shifting the research priorities of local scientists, people might locate themselves in places precisely because they are interested in the problems of those places. And this seems to have been the case for high-income country scientists during the 2014 Ebola epidemic. Fry 2022's headline finding is actually that the Ebola epidemic attracted a large number of high-income country researchers to endemic countries, and most of them sought local collaborators to assist with access to sort of specimens and to navigating the local context. And this resulted in a large increase in the rate of international collaborations and hence publications for endemic country scientists, that is, those who are already living and working in affected countries uh, working on Ebola. In contrast to a local funding story, this implies that an advantage in studying local problems can become like a global comparative advantage when the global community takes a sudden interest in the topic, as it did with Ebola. So there seems to be a strong correlation between local problems and the direction of research. Local scientists, and probably local research funders in some cases, might be initially motivated to study local problems because they're more salient, or because maybe they're cheaper, easier to study and access. But as that initial expertise is developed, it can become kind of self-perpetuating as collaborators pass on interest and expertise in the topic to new researchers who maybe were not intrinsically interested in these topics, and as non-local researchers and resources that are interested in the local problem flow to the region. That said, geography might not necessarily be destiny. Andrews and Smith, 2023, explore the impact of location on research direction in the context of the placement of land-grant colleges and agricultural research in the United States. These colleges were founded in part for the purposes of conducting agricultural research of interest to their state. Now, sometimes colleges get dropped in parts of the state where local agriculture differs from the state norm, though. So do these colleges focus on local agricultural needs, even if they're unrepresentative of the state's broader agricultural needs? Consistent with the results we've seen before, this is indeed the case. Land-grant colleges established in agriculturally anomalous counties, that is relative to the rest of the state, produce publications on a similarly anomalous mix of crops. But this doesn't necessarily prove exposure to local problems, in this case related to agriculture, drive research priorities. Just as researchers may locate close to the problems they want to study, maybe colleges were placed near the crops that legislators wanted researchers to focus on. So to see if this is the case, the paper uses data on the set of finalist locations for land-grant colleges and exploits the fact that amongst these finalist locations, the actual site was determined by vote or by drawing lots. For a set of runner-up locations with bids that were very similar to the winners, or where the winner was literally decided by lots, like by literal random chance, in those cases they actually do have a version of that ideal experiment we proposed at the outset of this post. That is all but random assignment of researchers, this time affiliated with a college, to different locations. They then evaluate the extent to which the land-grant colleges end up producing more research on agricultural conditions, specifically the distribution of crops grown in that location that are present in the winning location as compared to the crops grown in the runner-up locations. And 
Contrary to what papers discuss so far find, they actually find no significant relationship between the volume of research into local conditions and the location of these land-grant colleges. So what's going on? Anderson Smith dig into the mechanism and propose that one reason that there's no impact of the local mix of crops on a college's research is that land-grant colleges located in places with less representative crop distributions are more likely to build what are called extension stations in other parts of the state that are more representative. In other words, these colleges kind of overcome their geography by investments to obtain non-local information. Though I think we need to be cautious about going too far with this interpretation because the sample size are small and, you know, so the estimates are kind of imprecise. But this does echo Fry 2022, which found that high-income country researchers interested in Ebola could travel to Ebola endemic countries to do the research. If Andrews and Smith's theory is true, it suggests that we're not entirely subject to the whims of geography because we can certainly become interested in things that are not local to us. Uh, and I have some posts linked to there about long distance knowledge spillovers, though all else equal, we're probably more likely to be influenced by local issues than by distant issues. And moreover, geography still matters in the sense that when we become interested in non-local problems, we may have to travel to where the problem resides to study it well. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.